The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today I'd like to introduce and welcome David Fairhead on the Zoom from the UK. I assume you're in the UK, are you? I am, yeah. I'm in the the deepest countryside of Surrey. (laughs) Right, okay. Now, uh, David, you're the... Uh, producer and director of the new film that's come out, Lancaster, uh, alongside uh, Anthony Palmer. Uh, you both directed and produced this um, amazing documentary. Um, uh, that, that's, that, that's right. We're, we're part of a, a team. Uh, Anthony and I uh, directed it, co-directed it, and uh, we also produced it alongside our other producing colleagues. Okay. And I also um, noticed in the credits that you're also the editor of the film that that's right i'm uh, i mean that's my my true profession if you like is being a film editor um i've been doing it uh longer than i like to think 37 years oh, okay. um and uh, uh yeah it's it's you know it's a particular skill um which you know it develops over time and uh, once an editor always an editor i think Absolutely. I've done a few uh, films myself and obviously the podcast, I've done a lot of editing and um, something like this where you have lots and lots and lots of people who have all been recorded singly and then you have to pull out little bits from each of those recordings and fit them together into a a linear narrative. That's a big job, a huge job, and you've done really, really well. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was certainly a challenge. I mean, 38 interviews. which we were fortunate enough to complete all but one before COVID. I mean, that was just, you know, one of those incredibly fortuitous things because had, had COVID come, we'd never have been able to get them. Um, 
and then uh, yeah so the, the process when you where you have the interviews and they, they weren't the longest interviews in the world um, uh, you know the average age of the interviewees was uh, 95 yeah um, and we didn't feel like we could sit these uh, men and women through uh, you know three hour long interviews so only only one of them was was longer than uh, say an hour and a half um, and that was with Rusty Warman so the process is we get them transcribed um, so we can work with them more easily. Um, and then it's a matter of going through those transcripts. And this is where the editing process starts, right right from the beginning at that stage. You go through the transcripts and you always have a memory of, um, of, of doing the interview. And the way that it would generally work is uh, Ant would, would film the interview and I would uh, ask the questions. Yeah. And so you have a memory of... Uh, of of the actual interview itself and there's always some standout answers yes. um, and then you go through the go through the transcripts and you, and you start to um, you could see those those especially those ones you remember but there's lots of other ones other responses and so we we'd we'd cut those into a literally cut and paste into a, a huge word document that ended up being 600 pages long can you believe <laughs> of, 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 of all the all the elements of the story so we'd worked out this the kind of uh uh all the kind of areas we wanted to try and touch on in the film so this is before he had any idea of what the actual narrative would be but we just knew we wanted to find out about uh you know their their early days what made them join the raf um uh, uh the blitz uh you know what uh their training uh forming a crew etc etc so all these subject areas we, we put them into. So yes, that ended up with this vast document. And that was the first part of the edit process. And then we started to put it together in the, in the uh, editing software. It's all done on the, although I'm a film editor, it's all done on computers these days. Um, and, uh, and, and gradually a narrative starts to take shape. And of course you can't fit everything into it. The film would just be way too long. But that's that. That was the that was how we we took the the, the raw interview material and started to fashion it into a shape. Right, right. Uh, I should say too, um, for anyone who hasn't twigged yet, you you two uh, had previously done Spitfire, which was another brilliant documentary, and I think Spitfire had a lot less um, number of people that you interviewed, wasn't it? It, it was more of a core. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, it was. Uh, I mean, but, but but through the very nature of the machines, <laughs> um, you know, the Spitfire was about single seat fighters, yes, um, yes, yeah. whereas Lancaster is about uh, uh, an airplane with seven crew members. Yeah. And so, yeah, by necessity, it was uh, it was different. And in fact, that was one of the things that really um, interested us in telling the Lancaster story, um, because you'd you'd have uh, this kind of almost mosaic like feel of people who've been in a crew um uh telling us their part in 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 in, in the story yeah. uh so you know we we could combine their thoughts to 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 tell the the, the, the story rather than rely on one uh, narrator so if you remember in spitfire for instance um uh you know during the battle of britain sequence jeffrey wellham tells a certain story about you know shooting down these two Messerschmitt 109s, and and he he's the only possible narrator for that story. Yeah. But in Lancaster, we have people who who weren't no no one in the film we interviewed flew together. Right. 
Although some of them, it turns out, were in the same squadron at the same time and, and, and didn't know each other. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, just discovered that the other day. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, so, but, but you could get different perspectives. So a, a navigator's perspective on flying on an operation was necessarily different to a, a gunner's perspective or a pilot's perspective. So, and we could combine these, these thoughts to, to, to give the impression that they were talking about, uh, if not the same event, but similar events. Absolutely. And, and that actually worked really well. It reminded me, I don't know if you've seen the uh, film that came out a couple of years back uh, that Peter Jackson made, um, which was uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. And, I certainly did, yes. Yeah, that was a fantastic film. And it, it mm. used a, a lot of different voices telling different stories about the build-up to one sort of big push. And I got the very same impression with Lancaster. Mm. Uh, it was just masterfully put together. Well done on that. It was, it was great. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the other thing about it, too, it's not just the voices of the veterans, and, and they are the ones telling the story, but you've got an amazing soundtrack of music, and then there's the soundscape of, you know, Merlin engines and all that, which helped to drive that along. And then on top of that, just to bridge things, you've got Charles Dance. I mean, the great actor mm. Charles Dance as the uh, as the narrator. So, and he was a narrator on Spitfire as well, I believe. That's that's right. I mean, it's you know that the, the soundtrack or the audio track of a film is as important as the visuals, and a lot of people forget that at their peril. And uh, because this is a film primarily designed for the cinema, it's a feature documentary. We put an awful lot of work into that. Um, but I'm also conscious of, um, uh, you know, the enthusiast as well. I mean, the, we don't make the film just for aviation enthusiasts. We make the film for a wider audience because, yeah. you know, it would be foolish to limit your potential market. But at the same time, I'm really conscious of the enthusiast because I'm one myself and I have been for my entire life okay. uh, an, aviation, an aviation enthusiast. So there's a balance to be struck when we're putting the film together between, between the music, which is all specially composed by Chris Rowe, who also did the music for Spitfire, right. and, and then the sound effects, um, because I want those, those Merlins to really you know, punch through and give that kind of, because they have this kind of emotional resonance, I think, yeah. uh, such an incredible sound. Absolutely. And so there are parts of the film where you just have the Merlins. So for instance, at the very beginning of the film, it starts with the sound of the uh, of the interior of the lank with the Merlins, which must have been <laughs> incredibly loud when you're in it for real. Yeah. But that's that's the that's the backdrop to the to the to that opening credit sequence and the shot over the water. Yeah. And then we cut to the exterior of the aircraft as it comes past you, and again that absolutely amazing roar of, of four Merlin engines. Uh, just so literally just the sound and then that's when the music starts so we always wanted to try and keep that that balance and then you're you're also you're always always fighting a battle with the tendency to want to make all the sounds louder but then you you, you need to let people hear what's actually being said so there's a the the the, the, the audio mixer does a really fantastic job george fulgham in balancing all that yeah. with with the with the music and then on top of that yes you have uh charles's uh narration and that's you know the film is primarily told by the by the veterans that's the model uh, by which we work so that the, the the commentary literally 
gives you the necessary information to allow you to go from one sequence to the next. It's not, it's not trying to give you extra information. It's tr not trying to um, take over the film. It's there really to support what the veterans are saying. And there are just times when you haven't got enough uh, in the interview, in the interviews you've done to yeah. allow you to tell the story just in their voice so that so really his voice is to is to get you from one place to another in an elegant as elegant a way as possible yeah and and very elegant he's uh he's a fantastic narrator i've, I've heard of him a few things and and yeah he's just great so good choice yeah yeah <laughs> uh, uh, you know the the voices of the uh veterans that we're talking about one thing that i loved about this film that there's been a number of Lancaster and Bomber Command films in the past, but most of the time they don't cover the range of different nationalities who uh, who flew and and you know worked on these things. And in this film, we have you know an Australian, a Canadian, um, a guy from Jamaica. We had Ron Mayhill from New Zealand, who I knew. Um, I I thought very highly of Ron. He was our uh, president of the Bomber Command Association here for a number of years, right. and he was just a brilliant guy. Um, and it's just wonderful to get all those Commonwealth or Empire in those days uh, voices as well. So, yeah, thank you for doing that. Well, not not at all. That was a, a really uh, something we, we wanted to do right from the beginning, because we never achieved it on Spitfire right. um, uh, for a, a number of reasons, one of which, um, you know, Spitfire was our first uh, film that Ant and I had made as a you know first feature documentary made together. We'd worked together in the past, yeah. um, but we'd never done something like this. And you know, both Spitfire and Lancaster, we had to raise the budget, raise the funding, get people on board. And with Spitfire, it, it was it was much more, <laughs> if you like, um, uh, fragmented as a as a development process. And so we never had the wherewithal to 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 get interviews in say New Zealand or Australia. Right. But what we did manage to get in Spitfire was other other voices. So there was a, a Polish voice, for instance. In fact, yeah. we got the last um, surviving Polish uh, squadron commander, um, uh, which was amazing to get him. Yeah. Um, but in uh, with the start of, of from the very start with with Lancaster, it was more we'd, we'd set it up. Uh, our, our, our producer colleagues were much more rigorous in the way that we we uh, approached the, the, the subject and uh, so we were we, we we planned right from the beginning to do the interviews uh, in, the, in the Commonwealth countries, and uh, that that was possible. Um, again, we didn't we didn't really have the budget to to go to Australia, New Zealand, yeah. but what we did have is uh, you know co colleagues and friends who we could call upon, and so we uh, in in Canada, an old um, university friend of mine is a cameraman for the CBC. So he and his wife did the interviews. We we wrote the questions and we said, you know, this is what we'd like. And we gave a very strict uh, outline of, of how the uh, shots should be set up. So a low backed chair, so somebody doesn't disappear into this sofa, which you see so often on, yeah, on uh, t TV interviews. Yeah. We wanted the, the, the individuals to be to stand out in the shot. Um, uh, a shallow depth of field, and so the background is, is out of focus to a degree, um, you know, lighting. From, so we were very strict about how we wanted the thing shot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so we, we managed it in that in Canada. So we got two interviews in Canada. In Australia, uh, a, a contact, in fact, a chap who got in touch uh, uh, through uh, Spitfire 
and uh, he was a cameraman in Sydney and he said, look, I've got my own Ari Alexa, which is a very high end camera. Uh, uh, you know, how can I help you? And, and so we set up again, contacted the Australian Bomber Command Association. They put us in touch with two veterans um, who lived in and around Sydney. So he did those interviews. And then for New Zealand, um, we didn't actually have a contact. And then, and then we were introduced to um, a chap who's the head of the um, Glenn, uh, the Glenn, oh, Glenn, Glenn Turner. Yeah, Tim Turner, yeah, yeah. Uh, head of the 75 Squadron Association, and he connected us with Jude Dobson. Oh, right, and of course. So, yeah. <laughs> so we had a, a, a couple of Zoom calls with, with, uh, with Jude, and she said, well, look, I, I, she was making her own um, TV program at the time about the, the, the Kiwi veterans from the war, and she said, um, well, I would, I would suggest you, you interview Ron. Well, we interview Ron for you, and so we came to an arrangement, and uh, she she did the interview for us. She did, she she did her interview for her program, and then she did a second interview straight after, with with Ron. And she, <laughs> I was chatting to her the other day on Zoom, which is quite funny because her she said her interview with Ron was uh, was was quite long, and uh, uh, he took time to come to his answers. Second time round, he rattled them off. <laughs> so the, inter the interview was only about twenty minutes long, but we got everything we needed, which was fantastic. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, um, that's that, that's really good that you uh, had that network around the world doing that. And uh, it's yeah. interesting that uh, I helped Jude find veterans for her film because right. I've been I've been uh, you know catching up with veterans and, and interviewing them for about fifteen years or so. And so, right, yeah. Ron was one of the ones that I put her onto, which is quite cool to see that he yeah. he ended up in your film because of it. So yeah, yeah, he made it onto the international stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned that you've been a lifelong uh, aviation fan. Can you tell me a little bit about what was your motivation to eventually do these films? Because I don't, you haven't before Spitfire had you done much in aviation side before on film? Well, it depends what you call aviation. I've done a lot of films about the space program. Um, oh, right. uh, you know, I, I, you know, when you start off as a as a uh, in this business, you, you just take whatever work comes along. So I've done so many different things, sport, drama, comedy, news. Um, but the thing I kept coming back to or, or kept getting offered work in was documentary. And I ended up eventually doing a lot of um, science and history documentaries for the BBC. Um, so there was a long running science series called Horizon oh. and another one called, called Time Watch. And uh, I loved those, both of those, both science and um, history. Yeah. Um, but I always had this, as I say, a literally lifelong interest in in aviation, inspired by my dad, I think, uh, you know, and uh, and he was in the RAF doing his national service and what have you. Yep. Uh, but uh, eventually, with the, on the science side of filmmaking, I got offered. Um, uh, I did a fantastic series for the BBC called The Planets. This is back in two thousand. And that really rekindled the uh, my memories of uh, Neil Armstrong walking on the moon because I was five years old when that happened, and okay. I, I remembered it I remembered it vividly. And so to start working with on that space related stuff again, I found really exciting. And then I, I got offered um, at the first feature doc I ever edited was called the uh, In the Shadow of the Moon, and it went to the Sundance Film Festival. It won the Audience Award there. And so, of course, after that, I was offered quite a few <laughs> uh, films to edit about the space program. So I, I must have done about five or six, I think, and a TV series um, about it. And okay. so I, I love the whole um, 
uh, incredible. And, and it's quite a day to be talking about it because NASA is about to launch its test rocket again today. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, the <laughs> and me too. Yeah. The, the, uh, the Artemis. Yeah. It's going to be a, a lot in the middle of the night for you. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, so it was, it was thrilling just to work up with that material. And then, and then I got offered, um, uh, the opportunity to direct a, a film called Mission Control, uh, which I did. That was the first feature doc I directed. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that, if you like, got me into the, into the zone of, uh, of being able to think about making my own films. And then, but it was Ant, funnily enough, uh, who, who came to me and he knew I worked in feature docs. He worked in, in television documentary and his was very much sort of people-based stories. Yeah. Whereas mine was perhaps a little bit more technical or, or historical, I think you could say, rather than technical. Um, but of course, all at the heart of all um, films are people. And so, we, we wanted to do the same thing, and, and that was tell people stories. And he, he said to me, he said, do you think there'd be any interest in a feature documentary about the Spitfire? And I said, absolutely. And, um, and so that's how we started. And it literally, the pub down the road from me, sitting outside, chatting one summer's evening, and, and that was it. So we, 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 we vowed to start. Uh, we decided to co-direct, because I knew more about the aviation side. He didn't know anything about that, really. Yeah. Um, but I, I took his, his guidance, because he was... Um, uh, he he was directing much more experienced director than me, but we um, the fact that we were friends helped. But we had established this really fantastic working relationship, and um, and we went on from there. And, and it was just a matter of we knew we had to do the interviews um, because you know the the pool of uh, available people to talk to was was getting less and less. Um, I mean, it's incredible <laughs> you know, when you can think about now, there's even fewer, but yeah. back then it seemed like that we were in a race against time, but we got the key interviews like Jeffrey Wellham, Tom Neal, etc. Um, and, uh, and that, and that's how it came together. So it was like, it was, it was a, a great passion that was, we were fortunate to, a, to, to combine that passion with our filmmaking uh, skills, if you like, and uh, and produce that film, and that's 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 how it happened. Yeah, wow, that's awesome. Uh, you mentioned the race against time. I seem to recall that the week that the film was first released in Britain, two of the main uh, veterans in it um, actually passed away that week, didn't they? I think that that's right. Well, three of them within three, three weeks. Right. Yeah. So Tom Neal and Jeffrey Jeffrey Wellham died the following week, and Mary Ellis the week after. So. Yeah. It sure. makes makes you real makes you realise how close it is, and I'm I'm currently trying to um, do the next film, uh, which is literally being done in my spare time, uh, because once again we don't haven't raised the budget at all yeah. yet. But but the next film's Mosquito, and you know if the average age the age of the veterans on Spitfire was ninety two ninety three on Lancaster it was ninety five on Mosquito it's ninety nine, wow. um, and yet what's incredible is that. We, we, we can find these veterans and we can talk to them and they give the most amazing interviews. So, Isn't it amazing that some of them, like in sort of 98, 99, and they look really frail, you look like they'd fall over if the wind blew, and yet they sit down and start talking and their minds are so sharp and, and their memories are so vivid, it's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it, it is absolutely incredible. I mean, I, to give you an example, uh, a few weeks ago, we went to interview a, uh, uh, a mosquito night fighter pilot, mm -hmm. um, and his daughter had said to me, uh, listen, he has mild dementia, 
and it's you know it, it's hit or miss really whether you'll have a, a good interview with him or not he'd never been interviewed before yeah. um but you know she said in conversation sometimes he remembers sometimes he doesn't and we got there and i, I wasn't sure he seemed a bit sort of um if you like uh flat um yeah. and uh didn't sort of his face didn't light up when, when we met him and all the rest of it and i thought yeah. i'm not sure how this is going to go and anyway, we set the camera up and all the rest of it and the lights and got ready to go so the camera turned on and I asked him the first question and it's like somebody flicked a switch inside him and he just came to life and it was wow. absolutely amazing those memories those experiences were, are all in there and they just need activating yeah and and he gave us the most extraordinary interview and uh, it just goes to show that you know in, in society at large we, we we can write off people who've who, who are old for one yeah. But two, especially for people who've got dementia, but you know, there is still a, a whole fully formed person in there and you just need to somehow unlock their minds and, 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 and it all come out and that person returns. It's really fantastic. Yeah. I've had that exact same experience myself when I've been interviewing some of the veterans and it, it is amazing. Like they can't remember what they did in the, this morning, but they can remember no. what they did vividly in 1942. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Um, I was um, going to ask, what what are your favourite documentaries about the Lancaster from the past? Which which ones do you remember that sort of stand out? Uh, that's a very interesting question. Uh, funny enough, I I can't really remember any of them because there have been a lot of TV documentaries, mm. yeah, but they all follow a very similar format, and that is there's a presenter who wanders around, uh, who tells you what went on. And then there might be a three-second soundbite with a veteran standing yeah. in a windy field. Um, and then you go back to the presenter marching around again. And I'm afraid that that model is a bit tired, in my opinion, and doesn't, and certainly doesn't work on a feature documentary for the big screen. Right. So um, there, there has been great work done uh, on TV documentaries and what have you, but I just can't remember, <laughs> I'm afraid. <laughs> I've seen a lot of them, and they all blur into one. Yeah, have you have you seen the th uh, three documentaries that were made by squadron leader Jack Curry, who had actually flown Lancasters himself? No, I'm afraid I haven't seen. Oh, that one. They, they're really really good. He he. Right. One of them one of them is about the Osberg raid, um, just about that raid, and then there's another one called the Watchtower, and it's about uh, uh, East East Kirkby, and um, the third one I think is might be just called Lancaster, but. He's a he's an actual veteran who yeah. has has written the books and then he's like oh I'll turn it into a TV thing so that that one sort of stands out with me but um, you I'll, know, I'll have to I'll have to try and find it um, yeah they because I'm certain that's I'm certainly aware of him um, yeah they, they used to be on uh, YouTube so you might be able to find them on there or at least some of them right right yeah I'll, um, I'll, I'll take a look mm. now <clears throat> onto the the sort of big question and. What was it like to work with the BBMF Lancaster? Well, uh, a thrill. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, that, that's, that's the first feeling. No, it was, um, we filmed uh, with the BBMF for Spitfire, but we didn't film um, any air-to-air -air footage. Uh, we, we filmed at Coningsby. In fact, we filmed for two days at Coningsby because at the time, we, we were trying to make this link between uh, the RAF then and the RAF now, you know, the fact they essentially do the same job 
defend the airspace. And and so, uh, but it was very fortuitous that the BBMF, uh, you know, flies out of an airfield where the active you know, typhoon uh, uh, fighter force is. Yes. So we could get the we could get those kind of parallel shots. But in the end, we didn't end up using the um, apart from a short sequence at the beginning. We didn't end up using the this this sequence that we put together about about the RAF today. And in fact, that's on the DVD if you happen to oh, have right. that um, yep. as a, as an extra. Um, uh, so anyway, we had a we had a good relationship with the BBMF that built up uh, through that because you know they get uh, approached all the time for uh, uh, for filming purposes and they of course have to filter it through. So when we first approached them about Spitfire, we were just another bunch of unknowns. Yes. But they uh, they really liked Spitfire and uh, so when we approached them again about Lancaster, the door was already half open and that was fantastic. Right. Um, but nevertheless, you know that the uh, the Lank is you know, one of only two flying. Um, it's it's still you know run by the RAF. It's not run by a private company or anything like that. So there's all sorts of protocols. Um, the uh, Ministry of Defence uh, wants to uh, uh, realise its value as an asset. So it'd be really expensive to um, to pay to film with it, etc., etc. So there's all sorts of obstacles. In, in the way of, of getting to the aeroplane, no matter how enthusiastic BBMF are. Yeah. But, and this is one of the very few uh, COVID silver linings that I know of, um, when uh, the lockdown came, suddenly they couldn't fly that aircraft anymore. Not because they couldn't fly it, but because there were no air shows to take it to. Right. And, and, it, and, and suddenly, they were, because they limit the number of hours they put on the airframe every year, and and so suddenly there were spare airframe hours available and we spoke to john dibbs our director of aerial photography because we we could we, we were speaking to him during the, the first lockdown yeah. in in uh, 2020 and um uh, it, we could see the lockdown was going to come to an end we've been told and and so he said uh, well look i can i can come over um, if we try and set this set the shoot up, so why don't we start negotiating with them? So we did. He started speaking to them. Uh, he already had a relationship with them anyway because you know he's the world's best known aerial photographer. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and so they they had they had a discussion, and uh, and we already had the contract with the MOD uh, for a previous uh, shoot we were going to do with them, which was just literally us filming from the ground. Uh, uh, so we already had that contract in place, um, but uh, the amazing thing that, that came out of it was that uh, they, they they still had to keep training their crews you know, because the crews right. have to remain current on the aircraft type. Yeah. And uh, uh, so Dipsy negotiated with them uh, that we would film a navigational exercise uh, uh, one day. And uh, and that was it, and it was agreed. So uh, uh, we were we were able to to set that shoot up. We were able to, to go up there. We were able to uh, you know get the crew together, and we had to pay for Dipsy to be in um, quarantine for two weeks. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't the cheapest shoot ever. <laughs> uh, uh, and and uh, uh, and so one September day, and was it in twenty twenty? I think it was. Yes, tw one September day, we. Um, we travelled up to the whole team travelled up to uh, to Coningsby, and we had a three-hour 
chute with the Lank, uh, and it flew out over over the dams uh, where they trained for the dam busters, yep. and then it flew out um, to the coast and out over the North Sea, uh, and then it flew uh, in and amongst the clouds, uh, and that was a three-hour flight. In fact, you know the, the great thing about filming an airplane like the Lancaster unlike a Spitfire, is the Spitfire's got to land every hour to refuel, whereas the Lank could stay up. In fact, the helicopter, the filming helicopter had to land to refuel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was, a, it was a bit of a sort of switch around. But um, uh, yeah, we got this absolutely fantastic uh, footage and a lot of it. And our, our watchword, we, we drew up some storyboards and what have you. In fact, I did some filming with a little model Lancaster I'd made uh, to, to show to Dibsy what the kind of shots were we wanted. Yeah. Um, and, the, and, the, and filming from the helicopter gives you great flexibility because although although uh, the length flies faster than the helicopter, you can position the helicopter, and so you get it. It's like a it's like an aerial camera platform, and the length can fly past it. So you get some fantastic variety of shots. Right. And um, and then and then at the end of the day, they'd agreed to do a dusk takeoff, which they hadn't done for for years, uh, and. They, the, the crew, the uh, air crew, were really excited about that because they I remember Seb, the pilot, saying he really felt he felt like you know he had 125,000 air crew in that aeroplane with him. Wow! Uh, because because dusk was when you know of course they take off and go off on their operations. Yeah. So I really felt he felt the hand of history on his on his shoulder. I think uh, when they, when they took off and that, although actually he didn't fly at that, but it was a, an opportunity for his his co-pilot to uh, to do a, a circuit, a takeoff and circuit. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that but that was amazing and 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 so to see a real dusk takeoff is very dramatic and very atmospheric. So again, we were we were very fortunate and thrilled to get that. Absolutely, that that would be so rare to see. I don't think even the Canadian one would do that uh, on a regular basis. So um, yeah, that's amazing. And, and there were some nighttime shots of it over the sea or coming in over the coast. I'm guessing that was daytime shots that have been recolored. Or that's exactly it. Yeah, there's there's an old Hollywood technique called day for night, and uh, it it does involve uh, uh, what we call color grading. Yeah. Um, but it's also the way you shoot it, um, because you don't want the sun to be in shot, but you want it backlit. And uh, the, the shots in particular you're talking about are some amazing shots uh, just taken off the coast with the sunlight reflecting off the sea, but also off the wings of the aircraft. And it's a it's a backlight. Um, and by uh, by adjusting the contrast and then the color palette, suddenly that goes from being uh, late afternoon or afternoon, yeah, it was after early afternoon, in fact, yeah. um, to to a moonlit night, and yeah. it it just it's just it's a very very effective technique. But you've got to get you've got to get all the parameters right. You can't just dim the dim the color, dim the contrast, and 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 give it a whack of blue to make it look like um, nighttime. You've got to, you've got to get everything lined up right and the aircraft in the right position against the light, etc. But it's amazingly effective. Um, when it works well. So is that all done afterwards, that, that um, recolor? Yes, yes. So at the time you had no idea whether it's working or not until later? or 
No, we, we you haven't. Uh, uh, you, you can see because of this day for night thing. We, we knew right. Okay, that that backlight it looks fantastic, etc., etc. Right. So we had we were pretty com pretty confident it would work. I'll tell you the bit that I wasn't so uh, sure about is is the the uh, footage shot out over the clouds because it just looks you know there's a little aeroplane, there's lots of yep. clouds. Uh, yep. it, it it didn't look that impressive. But the moment I got that into the uh, into the Avid the editing software. Um, uh, I could put a very, very crude grade on it, yeah. and, and and suddenly it was transformed. Yeah. And uh, and so you'd get shots like the lank coming in, you know, underneath the camera, that kind of thing. Um, and and with with the you know just a very crude uh, grade on it, suddenly it, it 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 transformed it. And and so I was really thrilled with that because it, it that it really exceeded my expectations. Whereas that shot over the over the coast. We knew from the off that was going to be brilliant yeah. Um, yeah. because because it just looked so good. But it was these other ones; they were almost like bonus ones. And then the shots over the over the dam as well. Um, uh, that that took quite a lot of work in the in the in the grading. Um, there's a young grader called Jack Jones, colorist, and he did a really fabulous job with masking off the sky. And it takes so much work for something that's only fleetingly in, in frame, but it's right. all those things come together. They have to convince. Because if you, if, if, if a mo for, for a moment you say, well, that shot during the day, once you've asked that question, then the bubbles burst. So you, yeah. have, to, you, have, you have to try and uh, make it as, um, as, as convincing as possible, otherwise the illusion's ruined. Well, I mean, it convinced me for a, an awful long time as I was watching it. I was thinking, oh, and then I suddenly thought, hang on, did they fly at night? Surely they didn't fly this at night. And that's <laughs> when I started questioning it, you know, because I know that yeah, yeah. how precious the aircraft is. But yeah, most people who watch it will go, oh, look, it's at night, you know. <laughs> I, I, I know. Well, I mean, uh, uh, plane spotter nerds uh, will <laughs> pick up the fact that it's got but, its, it, you know, uh, mod, mo it's, you know, it has to fly in the modern uh, aviation space or whatever you want to call it, you know. Yeah. So it's got anti-collision lights on it uh and, and things like that so i'm, I'm afraid the, the you know aviation enthusiasts will have to excuse us for that but the rf we're not going to turn off those lights just for our filming you know no. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I have to thank uh the the raf for that um uh you know because without it we wouldn't it wouldn't have been possible but you know they absolutely recognize the value of it because you know they 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 fulfill a very important role of the BBMF, which is to remind people of, of what it is the RAF does. Yeah. And what was done in in in, in our names, uh, in in you know, in helping not just defend the country but win the war. And uh, and of course as as well as as we say in the film, you know, that this this is a very different film from Spitfire, because Spitfire was when it boiled down to it about the defence of freedom. And Lancaster is a much more challenging story about how how you go about winning a war, and it's not it's not the prettiest of things. Um, what what you know what a country has to do to to, to win a war, and, and we're not talking about a war of aggression. This this is what it was from the German point of view, but not from our point of view. Um, and uh, you know we, we have to we have to challenge that head on. So it, it's it's really important that that the story is told, and from the veterans' point of view, especially I think, because. Yeah, their, their their story has not been told properly. I don't think, not, certainly not in the, in you know, for the wider public, if you like. Um, and so this is an opportunity for the veterans to tell their story. Absolutely, and I've met a lot of Bomber Command veterans. They all had exactly the same attitude as the veterans in your film. Is, you know, that 
they felt like they'd been betrayed after the war. Um, their, their story hasn't been told. And um, unfortunately, most of them are no longer with us, but I'm sure if they had the opportunity to see this, they would feel very proud of um, what you've done to tell their story. Well, I, I hope so. I mean, that was the, the our prime thing was to make sure we did justice to their stories. And it's not, you know, as I said, it's not an easy story. And, and also they all have a different take on it. There are some who felt that, it, yeah, well, they all felt it was a job they had to do. They didn't feel like they were on some crusade or anything. They just felt it was a job they had to do. Yeah. Uh, uh, and they had to get the war finished. And they're conscious that they know, of course, that they didn't win the war single-handed or anything like that. Um, you know, the Russians and the Americans had quite an involvement in it as well. Yeah. And um, the Kiwis. And but, the Kiwis. <laughs> and the Kiwis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, everyone did. You know, as you mentioned earlier, the, the, the Jamaicans, you know, we had, a, you know, volunteers came from all across what was the empire, but, you know, uh, the Commonwealth. Yeah. Um, and and they stood up and it's quite amazing and men and women too you know let's not forget that and that's and that's one of the things again in spitfire but but we really wanted to get the role of women um into into this story and now our, our, the main problem really is uh, uh we've we've left it so late to be telling these stories in in people's lives yeah um but but we have captured some of them and that's um, i'm very proud of that yeah i know exactly what you mean i I started filming veterans or, or um, doing audio with them as well around about 15 years ago. And even then I thought, gosh, I'm too late. But um, yeah, there's some amazing stories out there. And the more you talk to them, the more you start to actually really understand what it was all about. And uh, that, that, That's right. I mean, the, the, but the funny thing is, I mean, people, people have said, oh, you should have started making these films 20 years ago. Well, I wouldn't, I wasn't in the position to do it. Uh, and, and, you know, but but I, I think that there is something incredibly poignant about somebody telling you their story, possibly for the last time. Yeah. And and we, we really felt that with this yeah. film, that this is the last time these veterans will ever tell their stories. Yes. And and so we didn't we didn't want them just to be short sound bites. We wanted them to be able to tell us what they really felt about it. And by the necessity of it, not everyone is as good at talk, good as talking as the next person. But they build up this mosaic picture that I described earlier. And so as a collective voice, I feel they've told us their story for the last time. And that's, you know, it, it's humbling and uh, a great privilege to be able to um, to help tell their stories. And I'm so glad we have. I'm so glad we've we've, we've been able to capture them, just as I'm sure you, you are with you know, the interviews that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean it's important to get those stories and and i've started to go on now with uh uh interviewing post-war rnzf guys because you know some of the guys who f uh, flew vampires and venoms in the 1950s um they're now that age of the guys in bomber command that i was interviewing 10 years ago so i'm, I'm trying to capture some of their stories and things like that now too but um just so um Back to the film, one of the things that actually surprised me was the Woodford factory that it's still standing. Is it still standing uh, now? Or no, no. That was a that, that was nothing short of a miracle. Um uh we wanted to have something to do with the, the manufacturing of, of the mm. Lank because you know it was such a massive undertaking. Um and uh there was there's another factory 
that was built at what's now Leeds Airport. I can't remember the name of it. Um, and that, that was built pretty much underground. And that's still there, but it's like a storage depot or something like that. Um, uh, there was there was a the main kind of Avro factory where they 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 built the components of the aircraft is uh, in in Oldham in 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 Greater Manchester, but then Woodford um, is outside of Manchester. In fact, it's um, I think it's in Cheshire, um, and that had uh, you know a runway obviously where they could take the aircraft off from, and then these massive assembly sheds. And I did a little bit of research and found that you know the airfield had been sold off, um, and all but two of these sheds have been demolished, and they were building this enormous housing estate on it. And so I, I got in contact with the developers, and and they said, uh, yes, you're welcome to come down and uh, and film here, but uh, just so you know, it's going to be demolished in two weeks' time. Uh, and so literally, <laughs> my, fr my, my friend uh, Ian, who's one of the other cameramen on the, on the film, said, OK, well, let's just go and do it. So we drove up there and we had an afternoon to, to film in the, in, in, the, uh, in the factory building. I had this idea that we would get um, a bit like in Spitfire, if you remember, there's uh, a scene at the Farnborough Wind Tunnel where we have a... Um, a professor of aviation of aerospace come in and tell us about the Spitfire's wing. I wanted to do something similar uh, 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 in Woodford, but it was impossible. You know, there was still there were still COVID restrictions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right. So we just thought, let's just let's just go and film it, and we did. And it was incredibly atmospheric, and it had been horribly vandalised. There wasn't a single unbroken window in the whole place, um, but <laughs> but we but we got it. And the, and the the thing that was really amazing was being able to match the shots from the archive with the building yeah and, I so, and so yeah so you got this sense of like wow this 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 really was uh uh you know an, an incredible no pun intended but a hive of industry mm. it really was and they could you know take, make you know because they they're all the part parts would come from the um uh the factory in in oldham and then they they were assembled uh, at woodford and then taken out and test flown and so, you know, you see these shots in the archive, all these lanks being lined up and what have you, and the, the men and women working on them in the factory. It's really incredible. But then two weeks after we uh, filmed there, yes, it was demolished. And um, so another little bit of history goes. So, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, I was going to say, it's like the veterans. It, it told its story for the last time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Yeah, no. so I, I yeah. felt very, yeah, it was fortuitous that we got there just in time. Very much. Gosh. Um, with the with the next film, uh, Mosquito. Uh, how? I mean, is it getting much harder to find any of those guys, uh, or or are you going to cover it with some of the post-war Mosquito pilots and crews? Or, um, uh, it is getting hard to find, but it is amazing how once you start. Uh, Digging and using our network of of, uh, of, of friends yeah. and colleagues, so Jude has already suggested a couple of people <laughs> um, uh, in in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, uh, we've 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 already interviewed six veterans here in the UK. Okay. I'd love to find you know some in New Zealand, Australia, Canada. So I'll be I'll be you know extending that little network um, to see if we can we can find some. Um, 
uh, but you know, the, the, you, you start with a handicap, and that is unlike with the Lank or you know, Bomber Command, where there were seven crew members in each of the heavy bombers, there are only two in a Mosquito, yeah. and um, so you're already dealing with a smaller pool of people. Um, the 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 the, uh, the the way we're going to tell the story, or the way I'd like to tell the story, as I say at the moment, it's very early days. Um, in fact, we haven't even got a budget for it yet. Um, but by necessity, it's going to have to be a little bit different. Um, but but once again, I, I probably won't go into the um, post-war period, right. um, mainly because the the narrative thrust of the story is always about what the aeroplane and what the air crews did in order to help bring this war to an end. Um, uh, and that and that really is the overriding uh, narrative thrust of, of of each of the films. Yeah. And although yes, you do bring it up to date, you know, like in Lancaster with the Bomber Command Memorial, um, it's the it's the actual thrust of the action, if you like, and the plane's role in that is 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 those war years. Um, but there, there are other ways to help tell the story as well. So, you know, for, as far as I know. Uh, there are no uh, aircrew left who took part in some of those extraordinary low-level uh, operations that the Mosquito so excelled in. So, like uh, the Amiens prison break, you know, uh, the shell house raid in Copenhagen, etc., yeah. uh, etc. Et the Aarhus raid, and in, in which actually uh, uh, there was uh, Kiwi squadrons involved in, in in certainly the last two of those. But oh, I think all, all three. All of them. All of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so that that feels like a a bit of a gap in the story that we haven't got a voice you know from those actual operations but but the flip side to that is well let's let's get creative and think about a different way of doing this um and so you know there are sound archives uh, that the imperial war museum have have recorded yeah. uh of interviews with with some of the the people who took part in those raids so for instance there was a an raf navigator a guy called ted sizemore who was uh, instrumental in all of those operations he was a, he was a, a really skilled low-level navigator and he was the person who got them to the target and then the crews would you know the other air crews would take over and or the other aircraft would take over and, and carry out the strikes so that i know there's an interview with him so it's just a matter of right well through necessity we'll have to do it in a slightly different way Right. But uh, of course, you know, we do we do want to film um, uh, with with uh, real mosquitoes. And there's I know there's you know, there's there's four flying in North America, but there's also there's a, a, a place near Auckland <laughs> where yeah. they rebuild them. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so I'm very keen to explore that. I don't know at, at what stage any of the rebuilds are at at the moment. I'd love to find out. Um, uh, and and if possible, you know maybe uh, you know come out to New Zealand and, and film and film with uh, Avspex, uh, because you know the other thing about the mosquitoes, of course, it's unique construction. Yes. And yeah. and so to, so to see the moulds that uh, is it um, Glyn Powell. Yes. Yeah. So he he was the the guy who really kickstarted the. Uh, uh, or put, or put in New Zealand, you know, at the front of the pack of people rebuilding uh, mosquitoes, yeah. and he built those moulds, and that that's allowed the these uh, other aircraft to be rebuilt, and that's just incredible. So to be able to show that and how the uh, the aeroplane was constructed would be amazing. So, so yeah, uh, watch this space. Hopefully, um, hopefully I shall uh, get on the plane to New Zealand one of these days. Excellent. Well, and, if, uh, I, if I can, can help. <laughs> 
Well, thank you. Yes, I'll probably I'll probably come knocking on your door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I, I know all the um, Aspex guys very well, and I pop in there quite often when I'm in Auckland. So. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, well, put in a good put in a good word for us. <laughs> I certainly will, and I, I'm sure that I'm sure they will know exactly who you are uh, in terms of your films. So, um, but actually, just speaking of the the mosquitoes that they uh, restored there, the the first one KA one one four, which was the first mosquito that had flown in fourteen years because there had been known flying in the world. I was I I was really really amazed. I, I was lucky to be asked by uh, Warren Denham of um, Abspex if I could help um, help find veterans because they were going to have a big launch. There was going to be an air show and then a great big veterans dinner, and I was involved in finding the veterans for that. And mm. um, I managed to get. Uh, I think for the dinner we had thirty six veterans and. Wow. Uh, uh, t- two of them had come from Australia and one had flown from Britain, I think it was. Um, and the rest were all Kiwis. But unfortunately, most of them now, they've all gone since then. Mm. But um, the, the thing that amazed me the most, aviation fans were all abuzz about it. But everyone else in the public, once it went on the news, on TV, everyone else around New Zealand knew about this mosquito. And it was way bigger than anything else that sort of ever happened in the warbird scene people would i would we used to have a um a hot dog stand in town here and uh i, I went there and the guy was from new york he was a proper hot dog guy and he said um oh what are you doing on the weekend and i said i'm going down to masters into an air show and he's like oh is the mosquito going to be there yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? how, how amazing i mean it, you know every now and again something catches people's imaginations doesn't it and that and that clearly did it and it's because because yes there wasn't one flying I mean, i've been fortunate enough uh, to see the uh, the mosquito fly here in the uk on a couple of air shows yeah. in fact that same that same year that it that it crashed um and so you know it, it, it certainly well you know, of course it was tragic the two air crew were killed yeah. um, but it was also very sad that there wasn't uh, one flying anymore and so to actually get that it's like a world first of getting one back into the air um, must have been thrilling, and and you Kiwis, you know, had, you had it all to yourselves for a while. So <laughs> we, we did. We were really lucky. We were lucky that it went around a few air shows, and uh, and it was it was great. And then it, it went off to the states, and they did the next one. And uh, there's there's three of them come out of aspects now. There's another one that's sort of partially built um, at, with aspects, and also Glenn Powell's own one uh, is half built. He he's passed oh. away now, but um, so there's actually two others that are in a state of partial partial rebuild there so um yeah it's uh, it's certainly it's it's one of those things where, what, what, I'm, what i'm trying to say is the mosquito captured the public really really surprisingly and i think your film will do the same because everyone knows the spitfire and i think most people will probably know a lancaster or i've heard of it but the mosquito is one of those things you're not too sure and then it turns out hang on they're more interested in the mosquito. <laughs> well, that that's absolutely right. It's, uh, you know, as I said to you, the funny thing about the progression of these films is that when we first proposed Spitfire, everyone said, oh, I've seen everything about Spitfire. Right. Yeah. And then when we showed them the film, they said, oh, it is different, isn't it? <laughs> but then they said, ah, but Lancaster, no one would be interested in Lancaster because they don't know it as well as the Spitfire. Guess what's happened? People are really interested in it. Yeah. And now with Mosquito, people are going, oh, nobody's heard of the Mosquito. 
And then I said, well, you know, it's made of wood. And they go, what? <laughs> and it's that even that little intrigue, that bit of intrigue made of wood yeah. um, suddenly gets pricks people's ears up. It's extraordinary. And then, you know, the, 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 the thing that makes Mosquito different and I've, you know, there's the challenge as well is well, how do we make this film different from the other two films? Well, the, 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 there is a, a big challenge to it in, in, in making the film distinctive and stand out and be different from the other two. But my, my take on it is that the mosquito kind of um, represented the future of, of, of what was going to come. Yeah. And so it was almost like, um, in a way that, that you can look at the, the Vulcan and think, how did that thing fly just eight years after the um, Lancaster? That, I mean, eight years after the Lang's first flight. I mean, that's incredible. It's like leaping a generation of stuff. Well, the Mosquito wasn't quite as radical as that, but it's the concept of the Mosquito that was much more radical. This multi-role aeroplane that could do everything that was thrown at it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's incredible. And that's, what, that's for me what makes it amazing, is that how many different roles it could fulfill and do every one of them well. It wasn't right. like a compromise. It did yeah. every one of them well. And then it paved the way for the way that um, uh, air power, for want of a better term, is now used in the in the you know twenty first century. Precision strikes, you know, limiting the you know that the mosquito could bomb a target in a in a city at a time when the main bomber force couldn't even find the city. Yeah. That, that was what made it so different. It was that leap. And and yes, we're still talking about nineteen forties technology, and it you know you weren't guaranteed to. It necessarily hit the target but it gave you a massive and much better chance of doing it and of limiting you know the what we call now <laughs> collateral damage yeah. um yeah. and uh, that was that was always the hope that you could you could carry out these surgical strikes um without such cost to either people on the ground or these the air crew so no it's an amazing airplane and, and I, I hope it does capture people's imaginations and that they they want to come and see the film <laughs> when it's oh, made. I, I definitely want to see it already. So. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, book your seats. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, I think I've asked everything. Actually, the only thing I was going to ask is about, you've managed to find some uh, old footage that some of it's coloured footage um, that I haven't seen before. Uh, some of the, the takeoff scenes and... Um, also, yeah. yeah. Also, there was um, footage of the dam experiments in Wales uh, with Barnes Wallace, and I thought, "Gosh, there's some interesting stuff in here that I haven't seen in other documentaries." So, yeah. Well, that that's that's always the 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 dream when you're doing your film research. Yeah. And because of the limited budget on this, I did <laughs> I did most of the film research. Um, uh, but I am fascinated by it, and, I, and I've got a very good relationship uh, with the Imperial War Museum, who've got this absolutely world-class facility of you know, the way they've curated the film. They've got millions of feet of film, yeah. and they look after it, you know, in special bunkers. Um, and uh, but they also make it available. And so uh, I worked, Ant and I uh, both worked with um, Fiona Kelly, who, who is uh, head of the film archives and you know they were really really uh, very very helpful and so we just dug quite deep um but the the stuff of the dams testing i hadn't seen before either right. and uh but they 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 had digitized it so so i'm guessing clearly at some stage somebody else had asked to, to see it but i'd never seen it in a in a in a film 
Okay. Uh, I'd never I'd never seen the incredible slow mo uh, shots of the um, of the testing of the uh, upkeep bomb at Reculver. Yeah. There's other angles of it which I've seen. Yeah. Um, you know, profile shots of it bouncing along the sea. But I'd never seen this stuff of it bouncing up the beach. Yeah. Uh, with guy with guy Gibson standing there apparently literally underneath the thing with his hands on his hips because uh, that's gibson the short guy oh right um, I, I didn't pick up on that yeah yeah you wouldn't know there's no arrow pointing to him mm. but i've seen mm. photographs as well of that and, and yeah he was right there but of course it's it's shot on a, a long lens so it compresses everything so they look a lot closer to the action than they probably really are <laughs> but it's nevertheless you know these are you know four-ton bombs skipping off the sea I mean, they're inert, don't worry. Um, uh, it's just phenomenal. And I, I just and I love the fact that it's shot in slow motion. You can see well, high-speed film cameras, so it seems to stop the props and everything. Yeah. But just the, the, you can see the backspin on the bomb and everything. It's really absolutely incredible, that stuff. Um, so, again, uh, you know, real thrill to find that. But this is all stuff that had been um, previously uh, in, 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 well, digitized by them. Yeah. Um, so anyone could have found that stuff, but maybe they just never got around to using it. I don't know, but I, right. you know, God, I, I, I cut a really long sequence with that bouncing bomb. <laughs> My <laughs> colleagues said, you've got to shorten that. That's way too long. I said, I could watch this stuff all day. Um, uh, the, the color, uh, the color footage, uh, the, the actual original color footage was from, uh, a the, the so the U.S. National Archives uh, uh, holds is a massive another massive repository of of you know film photographs. In fact, it's in the news at the moment because the uh, you know the former president was meant to have handed over all his paperwork to the National Archives. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. But 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 they but they 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 uh, you know they they do more than just hold um, documents and they've got a massive repository of film and what have you. So that comes from a uh, a film shoot that was done in June 1945 with uh, that uh, particular RAF squadron as a Pathfinder squadron. Can't remember the name of it, number of it. Um, but it's really beautiful stuff. And it was shot on 16 millimeter, so not 35 mil. So it has a kind of rough and ready documentary feel to it, but it's better than home movie footage. Yes. Um, and and so it really captures that that thing of you know the air crews coming out going out to the aircraft and all the rest of it but also when you know when it was filmed which is june 45 there's a reason why they're all smiling and that's because the war's over <laughs> and then and they're not going to go over berlin um but uh it, it's really you know it's fantastic and you see you know in the black and white shot you you, you never would know that the nissan hut is rusty um, but in a color shot you, you see it because those things were just you know flung up they weren't painted yeah. and they only had to last the duration of the war and everyone hoped of course it, the war wouldn't go on forever um uh you know you see the color of the uniforms the color of the the, the vehicles they get into yeah. um so all that stuff was was magical and you know there, and there was obviously a lot more of it and in fact if you know, on the dvd there's um there's an extras um piece about the ground crew and there's, there's oh, you can right. see more of it on on there um, and then the the other uh, footage that is colorized, so it's not originally color, is 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 what's called the Bomber Command operational films, and these were uh, films taken from uh, aircraft on operations, so that right. um, they could be shown to, you know, intelligence uh, or high command or whoever um, after after the uh, operation, so they could perhaps see what what had 
make a guess at what had gone on during the operation. And uh, so there's there's hundreds of these things. And I've, I really, you know, both of us found the the texture of them quite amazing, especially with the the kind of title at the beginning, you know, Bomber, Bomber Command, operational film, gives you the date uh, and what the target was. Yeah. And so, so they're, they're very... Uh, it's great to be able to use something like that as a device within the within the film itself Absolutely. but ultimately you know 1940s film stocks being what they were most of them were just blobs of white on a black background <laughs> and so whether it was berlin or hamburg or pinamunda or whatever you couldn't really see much of what was going on yeah um uh and Ant and I discussed this and we, we said well i wonder if we might be able to to colorize it and we used uh uh, to Peter Jackson as a as a reference to this when we went back and spoke to the to the museum and Fiona said well because yeah, they're very reluctant normally to allow that because they don't want to you know, stuff that's been colorized to kind of get out there and so people suddenly think all this stuff is color when it when it's not it's important that it's what it is yeah. um you know it's true to its uh, origins but anyway I said to her well, what about um uh, Peter Jackson she said well I suppose that has changed the landscape a bit <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and so we 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 got special permission uh, from the War Museum to colorize those operational films, and it absolutely transformed it from being these blobs of white to suddenly, you could see that it was fire. It was fire. It was a yes. city on fire, or or, yep. or, or whatever, and um, and uh, and very skillfully. Uh, also managed to, you could see target indicators, things like this, which suddenly come to life. So when you, the TIs as they were called, were different colors, you know, um, red, green, and orange. Yeah. And so we colored these different colors to give that, that sense. And, and uh, you know, and, and again, it, 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 just gave, it just gave the thing like a color dimension uh, and lifted it from being these, these blobs of white to actually it brought the thing to life yeah. and then every now and again you could see we went we went through we looked at 30 rolls of this stuff on 35 millimeter on, on a, an old film editing machine called a Steenbeck yeah. and I'm old enough to have used one of those in anger so I knew <laughs> I knew how to use it and it's uh, it, it's it's a fantastic thing because it's so tactile and you're, you're loading this film on and you know 35 millimeter is quite chunky stuff and then playing it through and you're seeing it and you tend to see the same old shots, funnily enough, in documentaries. There's a, there's a very famous shot, which we use at the beginning of a, a, a raid on Fort Syme, carried out in about sort of, I think it was April, March, April 45. And in it, you see the Lanks, actually, you actually see Lancasters come over the, uh, the clouds of smoke and fire on the ground. Yeah. But again, colouring that, suddenly brought it to life and, and, and the TIs floating down. So it, it suddenly becomes amazing. But in other shots, we found we could see tracer fire. And, and German tracer was multicolored. So there's one shot where Ants just colored it this, this a blue color. And you see it whiz through frame. And, and again, it brings the thing to life or, or other kinds of, um, there were different kinds of TIs. So you had, um, I can't remember what the ones called that, that kind of floated down under their own sort of, uh, you know, just went down into gravity, but there were other ones with with uh, with parachutes called sky markers, right. and you see these sky markers floating. The, these were designed for if they uh, 
it sounds terribly optimistic, but they, they would drop these, um, if, if the cloud was too thick, they'd drop the sky markers on, on where the uh, oboe system or, or, or you know, the various other navigational systems would tell them the target was. Yeah. And then the main force would bomb on that, but it didn't seem to make much allowance for wind. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> um, so... Um, uh, but anyway, you could these things. These things are very distinctive, and again, you know, you you, you color them, color them, and it, it brings it all to life. So, so that that in itself, again, was just a, a little filmic technique. But it really, I I thought, was it just another way in which we could try and uh, bring the story to life. And then the, the final bit of uh, film archive news <laughs> is um, uh, there was, as far as I knew. There were photographs of of the um, uh, Lancaster's prototype, but I didn't think there was any moving film footage of it. Okay. Um, but there was a role uh, in the archives of uh, Churchill at RAF Northholt in July 1941, and in it there's a Lancaster, along with a Sterling, a Halifax, a Flying Fortress, a Liberator. It was obviously some kind of demonstration day of four-engine bombers for the Prime Minister. Yeah. The cameraman is not very interested in the Lancaster. He's much more interested in the Sterling because it's bigger and more impressive. And Churchill himself certainly, you know, gives the uh, gives the Sterling a good look over, whereas he doesn't appear to even notice the Lank. <laughs> but but the Lank, uh, the cameraman does get the the Lancaster taxiing out and and taking off and flying past the camera. And in the taxiing past shot, I realized that if this, if this was July 1941, the, the, the prototype length first flew in, I think it was January 41. Um, and the, the, um, the first production model didn't fly until certainly later that year, I can't remember the exact month. Yeah. Um, and so this was a prototype, but it wasn't the first prototype. Um, because the first prototype had the third tail still in the middle, like the, oh, like the yes. Ever in Manchester did. Yeah. Um, but this was the second prototype, and it was the prototype built on. You know, they 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 took the obviously the data and everything from that first prototype and incorporated it into the second prototype. Um, it doesn't have a P painted on the side of it, which is the standard thing, but it has a, a, a radio mast just behind the cockpit. And again, that that from the uh, production versions that that completely went so this was the second prototype and it also had gun turrets and they they were it had a front and rear turret and it didn't have a mid upper okay. and again so this was the first armed prototype so it was an amazing thing here hiding in plain sight was a shot of the prototype blank so that felt like an amazing uh piece of good fortune to suddenly realize we had that uh so i was very chuffed to to stumble across that 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 is fantastic. Um, the other little point that I was going to make about the the coloured footage that you said was taken in June nineteen forty five that was actually at Coningsby, wasn't it? Ah, that's a second role. Yes. Uh, oh, so, okay. yeah. So that role was shot by. So I found that one uh, at a the Lincolnshire Film Archives. Oh, I got right. in touch with them quite early on, and that was also shot just post the uh, E Day, and. Um, uh, again, everyone's smiling. <laughs> no wonder. Um, uh, but you, I knew, I knew it was post-war because um, you could see in some of the other shots that I haven't used in the in the film uh, that they've painted the serial number of the aircraft on the underside of the wings, which uh, I guess is is non-wartime practice. Yeah. Um, but 
uh, it was still the same crews who would have been flying only a few uh, weeks before or months before um, on ops. Uh, so yeah, so that was a different roller film, and that was made. That was done by an amateur filmmaker. Uh, again, shot on sixteen millimeter. Again, in color, probably a roll of you know Kodachrome K forty or whatever. Yeah. And uh, so it's got this really beautiful tone to it. Uh, no, that so that was another lovely uh, find. So that was separate from that other stuff. Um, also done just post-war. And it ties in so nicely that you were filming the one last fly in Lancaster in Britain at Coningsby. And, uh, and, and it, you know, just some wonderful sort of bookends to it, wasn't it? Well, that, that's it. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, <laughs> so much of making a documentary in particular uh, can't be planned. It's, mm. it's the complete opposite of making a, a drama film where you start with the script and all that, all the work, all the effort, the creativity all goes into that script. You've got your script, you go out and make the film. I'm not saying making the film is easy, it's not. Um, but it's the opposite with a documentary. You start with an idea and so you have a, a kind of concept and you have a kind of rough outline of the story you want to tell. But the film is really made in the, in the editing room, in the cutting room. Yeah. And uh, because that's where you piece together all the elements of what you've filmed, whether it's the interviews, whether it's your air-to-air -air footage, whether it's your archive film, whether it's your graphics, um, all these different elements, you, you, you bring them together and, uh, and then you, you try to create this narrative. And then, and then you know, luck happens. And, and you know, so I, I remember vividly that moment of getting towards that, the end of the film we knew we wanted to end with the Bomber Command Memorial because it all kind of builds. But the film, the wartime narrative builds to Dresden yeah. um, because it's the, if you like, the, the best remembered and most notorious moment of Bomber Command's war. And we wanted to deal with that. And then we wanted to deal with the aftermath, which was the being shunned, basically. Yeah. And that leads to build to the memorial. But we also wanted to wanted to include the fact that there's only two these two flying lengths, and one of them is is flown by BBMF. And as I was starting to put that sequence together, and we'd done this interview with Seb, who's the pilot of the lank, um, I thought, well, how am I going to illustrate this? Because I don't want it just to feel like straight. I wanted to to get in this this the, and this thing that he talked about about feeling all these aircrew with him. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, and then I remembered I had that Coningsby footage and I hadn't used it up to that stage, even though I really wanted to. And it had this intertitle, as they're called, uh, RAF Coningsby. And suddenly that was it. Uh, and so there he is talking about walking out to, to the aircraft and, you know, being very much older than those young guys were and et cetera, et cetera. And you see those young faces. They look like children <laughs> getting into that, in, into that, uh, into the truck and then into the airplane. Uh, no, it was incredible. And then, you know, I'm sure Coningsby is just like dozens, if not hundreds of other airfields at the time, it's just a flat expanse. Yeah. But it does look so much like Coningsby. Yeah. And uh, uh, so to see the uh, the Lank, you know, coming down that runway and taking off was uh, was amazing. And then you cut to the shot that we got of the Lank from the air to air as it turns through the frame and then and then to the, the Bomber Command Memorial and then the fly pass over the memorial. So we were able to con construct this kind of narrative of, of almost like they were taking off and going to do the flight over the memorial that day. And it, it just seemed to tie it all together. So the, you know, it, it, again, it's all these elements, uh, you know, Seb's interview, 
the archive film, the air-to-air -air, uh, shots that Dipsy had got, and then being at the memorial and seeing the aircraft fly over. It's, uh, uh, it's very satisfying to, to, to piece that together. And then, you, then it feels like that's how it's going to be all along. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and also the other thing for the viewer, uh, I found it sort of it builds up and builds up, and, and it's just at the end it's very emotional and you start to think about all the, the veterans and, and it's, it, it's just an amazing ending. I, I really, well, I thought it was just brilliant, yeah. Well, thank you. Well, the, the other element which you touched on, I didn't really pick up on, was about the, the when we're talking about the sound, soundtrack and the music. Mm. Yep. And, um, you know, I've worked with Chris on five films. He's, uh, he's a very talented and skilled film composer um, and still annoyingly young, only 30. Um, uh, <laughs> But but uh, he's so quick to respond to ideas and and, uh, uh, and thoughts and changes, and he's not precious about it. So it's what you want in a collaborator because this is all trial and error. This stuff, yeah. and if something doesn't work, he'll, he'll come back with another idea. And we never waste a piece of music; we use it somewhere else and what have you. Um, but one of the things that we we wanted to do was, you know, I, I'm really interested in in folk music as a as a uh, uh, as a, to give you a sense of place uh, and, and, and music that comes from somewhere. And I, years ago, I went to an air show with my dad and I bought a book called The Airman's Songbook. And when I bought it, I thought, I'd love to do something with this uh, one day. And, and, and so here's my great opportunity. So in it, there's, there's, there's songs and sheet music of um, essentially old air crew drinking songs, for want of a better term. Uh, these, are the, these are the songs that they would sing in the mess or down at the pub. And there was one called We Are The Heavy Bombers. And um, so I thought a friend of mine sang in a male voice choir. So I contacted him and he put me in touch with the choir master. And this was just before COVID. And, and I went along to one of their rehearsals and they, they sang uh, the song, you know, they'd never seen it before. And I thought, this is fantastic. Then COVID came, choir singing was banned, et cetera, et cetera. But we kept the alive, the idea alive. And so when it came to uh, record the, the music, we knew it where we wanted to use it, which was at the end there. But there are other bits of choir or choral music scattered through the film. It's just, it's, uh, you know, Chris is, uses it really uh, skillfully. Um, to underscore certain things, but at the end there, we wanted the the voice of those air crews because that's you know that they stand for the fifty five thousand who didn't come back. As yeah. you say, it's quite an emotional end to the film, and then to hear these voices, and then we needed somewhere to record it. So uh, uh, we were recording uh, the, the music was performed by the Central Band of the Royal Air Force, who who again another amazing. Uh, thing to have the actual band of the RAF play the music score and so Chris when he wrote it was conscious of that so he used a lot of brass in his composition because you know what well, is a military band but a lot of brass yeah. um, and, uh, and and normally you wouldn't do that because brass instruments are quite brass players are quite inexpensive to hire um, but you know by, by, by its very nature that's what we got but we needed to record the choir somewhere. We wanted somewhere that had a, a good, um, uh, uh, you know, ambient uh, sound. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I had the idea that uh, because the, um, the, the, 
the choirs from Farnborough. And Farnborough, uh, for aviation, people who know about aviation will know that Farnborough was the, the centre of Britain's scientific approach to aviation. Right. And in, uh, in at Farnborough, there are uh, these. There's an enormous. There's three wind tunnels, but one of them is absolutely enormous. It's called the 24-foot wind tunnel, in a building called Q121, and it's got this absolutely enormous um, fan where they could fit real aircraft in front of it. And uh, but it has this uh, sort of return uh, where the where the air goes through and is and is recirculated, and that is just a concrete box. And I've been in there before because we filmed in there for Spitfire, yeah. and I knew that it had this incredible sort of acoustic. And, uh, and so I suggested to, to Chris, why don't we record the choir in there? And he said, yes. And then he really went, went with the idea. He said, well, maybe we could get some of the RAF guys down there. So we ended up uh, filming with the choir, four or five RAF musicians, and a great friend of mine, Phil Shepard, who's a cellist, who also came to play on the score. And it was just, it was absolutely out of this world because the, the acoustic literally is amazing. It's like an echo that will go on forever, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and so it gave, it gave this extraordinary feel to the, to the music. I mean, you, yes, you can add reverb uh, in, a, in a studio. That's what you know, people do all the time. But yeah. like, like most things, nothing beats the real thing. Yeah. And so we had this 20 or 30 person or man that was a male voice choir, 20, 30 man choir singing. We had these, uh, the, the, the musicians with the brass and percussion and what have you. And that's the final bit uh, to tell you about, and then I'll shut up, um, <laughs> is uh, Chris had made this suggestion that, that maybe when we are filming, we try and uh, just get some sound effects of the airplane and he would try to take them into his um, uh, music computer sampler and and do something with it and i said well i can do one better than that because i've actually got a piece of lancaster i've got a lancaster exhaust pipe so i just um i i, I tapped it uh i hung it from my ceiling and tapped it on the end uh, on a piece of wire so it was you know it, it, would, it would reverberate and then i tapped it and then he took that and turned it into musical notes and it's there in the film wow. but my my play my playing wasn't particularly uh uh it wasn't very professional so we so we took the exhaust pipe along to farnborough and a proper RAF bandsman uh, played it, and then again he sampled it with that with that you know, real reverb on it, yeah. and it's there in the film. And uh, uh, you should listen out to it uh, because it quite often introduces uh, something, and it just starts off as a little ringing sound. It's there oh, at the, the first the, the first piece of music when the lank flies underneath you. Um, it's there when there's threat. Uh, and that is, it's, it's an organic piece of Lancaster that's made its way into the soundtrack of the film. Uh, and uh, yeah, no, it was, uh, it was very satisfying to, to see that idea of Chris's come to life. So. That's brilliant. That's really brilliant. So um, the film opens in cinemas, uh, select cinemas across New Zealand on the 1st of September. Uh, um, and I highly recommend everybody who's listened to this to go and see it. Go and see it a few times, actually. Um, but is it going anywhere else around the world? I know it's been out in Britain for, uh, uh, what, several weeks now, isn't it, or months, is it? Yes. Well, um, so it's going to Australia. Yep. Um, we've got our two Aussie veterans there who I know are very keen to see it. Um, it's going to Canada. Uh, it's going to the US. 
Um, and I hope it goes to some other places too. I mean, you know, it'd be it'd be really interesting to see if there was a, an audience in Germany for it. Yeah. I, I'm sure there'd be an audience in places like Holland, um, because you know Holland was underneath the main route to um, to most of the German targets. Yeah. And there's a there's a, quite a strong connection um, with uh, Dutch aviation enthusiasts and and the UK because of that. Um, so yeah, I hope it gets a good uh, worldwide audience because it is an extraordinary story. It's a very challenging story, uh, but it's a story that should be heard. Absolutely, I agree with that. And you mentioned that there's a DVD. I guess it's going to be a wee while before that comes out. Yes, uh, I um, the distributors in New Zealand and Australia are madman, and so they'll be releasing a DVD at some stage. I mean, I know DVDs are old hat, <laughs> but. <laughs> Actually, there's nothing like having a physical thing. Uh, it's the digital shop. world is it, the, 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 exactly the, the digital <laughs> world's wonderful, but, but um, to have a real thing, you can't give a, a a link to an Amazon Prime thing and say happy birthday, but you can yeah. give a DVD. So, exactly. uh, so I'd encourage encourage people to go and buy it, and it's got those extras in it as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I want to see too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, thank you very much, David. I've really, really enjoyed this. Um, I. I'm actually fairly really, really privileged to hear all these stories from behind the scenes of this amazing oh. film. So, uh, well, it's great, to, it's great, great. It's, it's, it's great to chat with you and um, and to your wider audience. So I hope everyone enjoys the film. Yeah, I am sure they will. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheerio. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> <laughs>